Hello and welcome to episode 68 of Brews Less Traveled, the podcast exploring the best uncharted craft beer scenes across the United States. I'm your host, Brian, and I'm happy to welcome back my co-host for these Salt Lake City episodes, Molly. Molly, how's it going? Hey, Brian. It is going wonderful here in Salt Lake and happy to be back. That's great. Yeah, you are actually reporting live from Salt Lake. How's the trip been so far? It's been great, actually. You know, started off Friday, kicking on over to Portland and uh, got here uh, in Salt Lake on this past Monday. So always love coming here. I mean, scenery is beautiful. I have like mountains right outside of my window right now. Uh, Had some good beers, saw some good friends. So no complaints so far. Yeah, Salt Lake City is a wonderful uh, city. I was actually just talking to my friend Sven, who used to live out there. He was a student at uh, University of Utah and uh we were talking he was a home brewer he's one of the people that actually got me into home brewing and we were actually talking about our guest tonight and the former life that our guest had before opening bewilder be wilder that will be a topic of conversation i am i am happy to hear that you are enjoying your trip out there not only because you know i hope you have a good time but because i'm the one responsible for booking that travel and i'm glad to hear that it's working out (laughs) Yeah, uh, actually, definitely ideal this this time around. So, uh, yeah, hotel is great. Flights were great. No complaints, man. Did you get out to see bison yet? So, unfortunately, no bison. But I I, I have a whole other day, so I'm still determined. It's on my scavenger hunt. Okay. Salt Lake City <laughs> scavenger hunt. Sounds fun. Yeah, so we got another, we got an episode. We got an episode to do today. We do. Uh, and on this episode, we're going to be featuring beers from our friends at uh, Bewilder Brewing Company, as I mentioned before. Our our beer sub- subscribers uh, got some awesome inclusions from them this month. And uh, Molly and I are going to be enjoying their ESB and Vitruvian Pills. Very excited. Two styles that I have not had in a very long time. So excited to drink them all with you fine folks today. And more importantly, we have an awesome guest that will be uh, joining us as well here today. So, I mean, I think without further ado, please join me now in welcoming the uh, the owner and head brewer at Bewilder, Cody McKendrick. Happy to be here, guys. Thank you. Great. (laughs) Hey, Cody. Let's drink beer or I can tell you where to find buffalo. (laughs) There are buffalo here, sort of. Yes. All right. That will put me ahead in this scavenger hunt. But we're going to start with the with the ESB. So while we crack this open, Cody, what can you tell us about this particular beer? Well, ESB uh, is kind of a funny family of beers. You know, we ESB specifically like English special bitter um, or extra special bitter. Either way, I guess specifically refers to Fuller's beer in England. But in reality, it's kind of a family of beers. By style, ours falls on the bottom end of like the strong bitter and the top end of the best bitter categories. But we wanted to be as true as possible to style with all of these classic beers we do. So, you know, we import four malted Marisotter um, from Chris Malting uh, to do this beer. And we use all English ingredients. We have uh, English water profile. We build the water profile and all the beers we do. So we wanted it to be, you know, as authentic as possible. And as a home brewer, this was one of the first styles that I really started to fall in love with because you really couldn't find any good examples of them locally. Um, and I wanted to know what's it feel like to drink a beer, like an English pub beer, you know, we, we don't have that 
in Utah, let alone probably anywhere else. So it was literally the first beer we brewed on our big system here. And it was the first beer we released once we were able to release it. And we've been tinkering with it a little bit ever since, but you know, we're pretty happy with it in the tap room. We have a nitro version of it. And then, uh, it took a bronze medal in the NABA international beer awards this spring. So we're pretty proud of that. That's great to hear. I, I read on a description online that it has a not so secret crystal malt. <laughs> yeah. I, a few years ago, that's probably more than a few at this point. I fell in love with the Simpsons DRC, the double roasted crystal 120. Mm. And so anybody who's ever come into our homebrew store knows that I'm a big fan of the DRC 120. And that's the not so secret crystal malt. I just think it's got a really neat character. This is uh this is absolutely delicious. I don't know how I missed the nitro tap version of it. I might be heading over there after this to uh, give that a whirl then. Yeah, we, we have it right now. We don't always have it. It kind of comes in and out when we, when we make this beer, we'll package off a couple barrels of it to do nitro and it lasts as long as it lasts. Um, usually, you know, maybe a few weeks to a month, but yeah, it's, it's really good on nitro too, obviously. Yeah, this is, this is wonderful. This is a, uh... As you mentioned, the style, the family of of English pub ales. This is one of my favorite styles, and personally, I hope it sees a resurgence similar to Pilsner and crispy beers because this is this is exactly the type of beer I want to I want to drink all day. In addition to the wonderful flavor or wonderful aromas, this is actually a gluten reduced beer. Yeah, Cody, can you tell us what that means? What do you do to a beer to make it gluten reduced, and and how is that different from something that might be called gluten free? Well, gluten-free beers are really difficult to make because they have to begin from completely gluten-free ingredients, you know, sorghum, tapioca, brown, uh, brown millet. Uh, yeah, all that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. And then you have to clean out your mill and everything that transfers grain from one place to another. It's a big process. And and we respect, I totally respect and appreciate people that go through that process. And we've got friends that are gluten sensitive or, you know, celiacs. So we use an enzyme called Brewer's Clarex or on the homebrew side, it's called Clarity Firm. And it's really an enzyme designed to break down proteins that cause chill haze. But the net result is it drastically reduces uh, glutens in beer. And so generally a beer that's all barley or, or mostly barley, maybe a little bit of wheat will drop below 20 or even 10 parts per million gluten, which most of our friends that have sensitivities seem to be perfectly fine with. Um, and it gets rid of any potential for chill haze, which I guess is a nice benefit too. You guys do, um, you have a Kolsch that's also gluten reduced, right? Yep. Yeah. We do the Kolsch that way. The Vitruvian is also done that way. You know, we okay. figure these, these core beers that aren't real hoppy, we do it the, that way. The hops can kind of interfere with the process of that enzyme mm. and it's, it's really easy to do. It's not particularly expensive and there's enough people that come through our tap room that are appreciative of that, that, you know, it's worth it for us to do. We have a question in the chat about uh, the can of this ESB. Why the jackalope on on the can? Uh, yeah, there's that's a great question. It, we call it the bewilderbeast because uh, jackalopes aren't, na- aren't they're not native in Utah. No, I mean there's. I wish I had a really cool origin story. We we worked on a couple different naming uh, ideas for the brewery. The original one was the Abominable Beer Company, but there was some you know trademark issues with hub up in Portland and we didn't want to like yep. step on anybody's toes. So some of the branding we had from the abominable beer company were these mythical monsters and kind of, you know, mythical animals and the jackalope or the bewilderbeast uh, kind of became our calling card. It kind of became our, our go-to 
you know, mascot, so to speak. We've got a jackalope in our tap room that we decorate with all sorts of stupid festive things over the holidays. So it's fun. <laughs> it's, it's our, it's our spirit animal. I love it. I feel like with, with that too, you guys, uh, you opened up in 2019 and I think we all kind of know what happened after that. What happened within that first year? How was business? How did you guys, you know, were able to kind of come out on the other end of that? Yeah, it was sweet. It was really awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everybody's construction project starts the same way, you know, over over time and over budget. And we were totally there and we, we did our construction ourselves. I had to learn how to be a general contractor and learn how to build a place. And so we opened six months late. And this isn't one of those goofy Utah liquor laws. It just happens to be that in Utah, you have to have a business license to apply for the manufacturing license. And the city we were in, Salt Lake City, won't give you a business license until you pass your final inspection. So we were ready to open, but we hadn't even applied for a manufacturing license. So what I ended up doing is I went into eight different breweries around here that were generous enough to give me, you know, the time of day and I brewed eight different collaboration beers and we opened with those just as a bar and, and sold those in December of 2019. And then our beer went on March or January 16th of 20. And then our we got shut down March 16th. So Oof. yeah, it was brutal. We were already struggling with cash at the time because we were over budget. And then we got, you know, caught into the whole thing. I, I kind of feel responsible for the pandemic, you know, in some ways, but <laughs> we, you know, we just kind of kept going. We've, we'd been in the keep your head down and take steps forward mode for a year during the build out. And we just kind of kept going that way. And we still, for the most part, are in that mode. It's been, it's been a battle. You know, we felt like this year was really year one for us. The first year and a half were kind of throwaway years. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, you you can go into it with all the different best intentions of, Hey, we're going to go and we're going to focus on these traditional English and German beer styles and kind of draw a line in the sand and say, this is us. And if you don't like that, that's, that's okay. And there's lots of people doing other stuff. That's great as well too. But man, when you're measuring your customers on one hand every day, you just kind of start making whatever people are looking for and trying to have a wide variety. And so we got a little bit away from what we wanted our core, our core beers to be, but we feel like we've landed in a nice spot where we focus on the traditional European styles and also uh, brew a lot of uh, fun, innovative, hoppy beers too. Awesome. You kind of alluded to, you know, kind of brewing things that people want to drink. Is there any favorite kind of beer that you brewed within that time? That was a little crazy, a little off the rails, something that like you normally wouldn't have brewed. What would be the craziest thing that you did kind of within that year? Oh, well, I mean, I like beer flavored beer. So anything that doesn't taste like beer is out <laughs> of my realm. Personally, I mean, not to like, I mean, the industry has lots of creative, creative brewers out there and that's, that's awesome. That's not necessarily my, my place in it, but we did a, a really fun beer that was roasted pineapple and chipotle pepper, Blondale. And I really liked that. I, I judged a cider once that was that used roasted pineapple, like we caramelized a pineapple in the kitchen and then used two or 300 pounds of pineapple and a bunch of chipotle peppers. And that was a super fun beer, but I'm, I'm like handy. You know, a lot of people want to see a beer that says roasted pineapple and chipotle and have them kick you in the teeth. But I just want those to kind of accentuate the base beer. And that's what we did. And, you know, sometimes we get credit for that. Sometimes people are like, Oh, I wish I had more chipotle but it is what it is. You can't please everybody, you know, Yeah. but we had fun. Right. Very true. It's, it's almost like you approach those beers as if you're a European brewery, as if you're a, a, a traditional brewery 
taking the same approach of balance and and putting things together as one cohesive piece. Yeah. And then people are like, well, why doesn't it, why isn't it overwhelming? Why isn't it yeah. too much? And that's fine. And, and you know what, there's maybe there's our line in the sand, you know, people, there's lots of breweries that really brew to the extremes on stuff like that. And that's amazing. There's a lot to be learned from what those guys are doing and, and women, those men and women are doing, but yeah, I like, I, I appreciate balance and I appreciate the, the difficulty of integrating unusual ingredients subtly into beers. So it's, it's fun to try and crack those nuts you know, and it's, you know, we don't have the opportunity, we don't have the ability to, to test batch, at least back then we didn't. So we were just going straight to the big system and crossing our fingers and hoping it turned out good. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys followed what I like to call the Ken Grossman model. And uh, before starting your company, you and your co-founder were running a home brewing, uh, running home brewing stores mm-hmm. in Utah. Uh, Ken Grossman, the founder of Sierra Nevada, famously saw the minimalist set up at New Albion Brewing and then was inspired to go from homebrew shop owner to brewery founder. So I'm curious, what was the the tipping point point for you and, and Ross, the other founder? Yeah, I mean, it was always meant to be like a stepping stone to opening a brewery. Um, when we opened, we opened our first brew shop in 2011, you know, and if everybody who has a full-time job and wants to open a business realize it's really hard to do because, you know, opening a business is a full-time job and having a full-time job is also a full-time job. So, you know, (laughs) the idea was, yeah, we'll get this going. And then down the road, we'll be able to use, use that flexibility to open something else. But what we didn't realize is like the can of worms that we kind of, got into it was we got into the homebrewing industry right at the right time right after the recession was kind of finishing and people were coming out of it with a little bit of money finally and unemployment was starting to come down and we just got really big really fast way bigger than we expected really fast and at one point you know we were the biggest homebrew customer for bsg brewery supply group on the on the west side of the mississippi which is pretty big we were going through 20 30 pallets of freight in a, in a month, we'd burn up, you know, 2000 pound pallet of base two row. And I mean, five to six days, sometimes we were really pushing through material. That's absurd. And so we just grew it and grew it and rode the wave and opened a second store. And then, you know, eventually 2014, 2015, things started plateauing and heading back down the other way. It gave us the opportunity to step aside and be like, all right, well, now we can start working on this brewery project. And we had already seen a lot of people that we'd worked with on the homebrew side make the jump to professional brewers. And it's kind of easy to gauge where you're at versus where they're at as brewers and what you might be able to do. So, yeah, it's been it's been fun. But that that was always the the original goal. And we started that project in earnest in 2017. And then 2018, we figured out our financing and 2019, we started the massive project well this csb was delicious so i'm very excited to jump in to our pilsner next so i'm gonna bust this open and uh while we open this cody what can you tell us about the vitruvian pills that we are about to enjoy here yeah, this is my fi- one of my favorite beers probably my favorite beer we make Ooh. we're you know, in the spirit of collaboration, obviously our brewery couldn't have existed without collaborating with a bunch of other breweries. Um, and we wanted to be a part of the brewing community and a part of the community at large. And so we had an opportunity to work with the museum here locally called the Leonardo. And they have a big convention center or conference space. They do special events and they're always buying beer. And so we schemed up this beer um, in the Italian Pilsner side, which is kind of like a dry hop German Pilsner. 
And the idea is that Leonardo himself was born in Italy and died in France. So this beer is 100% Italian malt and 100% French hops. And we, we think that's cute. That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Since I'm in my hotel room, I hope you can all see this beautiful glass that I'm, oh, can't really, but I have the really cute little plastic glass to be enjoying all of these. Proper glassware. Um, so no judgment today, please. Yeah. Really, yeah. really going on the other end of that. You know, it's not proper glassware unless you don't have to rip a single-use plastic bag off of it before you I tell you. go yeah. to use it. <laughs> well, <laughs> I did very quickly there. I believe it was RJ that just like wrote the chat shot to uh, see if B-Builder was a stop with CBT here. And it is. It is. We are there often. Um, we use them uh, quite often as one of our meal stops as well. So on our tours, we do add a food and beer pairing component. And at Bewilder, we just have an absolutely excellent time with both the food and the beer. So right. come on out to Salt Lake and we'll bring you on over. Let's take a beer break. Did you know the United States has 63 national parks with five of those located in the state of Utah? The Beehive State is home to Arches, Canyonlands, Bryce Canyon, Capitol Reef, and Zion National Parks, the Mighty Five as they're known collectively. Two of these are located in the town of Moab, Arches, and Canyonlands. Arches National Park is home to the iconic Delicate Arch, which can be seen on the state's license plate. Eroded sandstone has given way to striking towers, balancing rocks, and of course, over 2,000 arches all preserved in the 73,000-acre National Park. The largest of Utah's national parks, Canyonlands, is nearly half the size of the state of Rhode Island and, like Arches, offers many beautiful rock formations with the addition of seemingly endless deep canyons formed by the Green and Colorado Rivers. Canyonlands can be seen prominently in the first season of HBO's Westworld as most of the filming took place in the large park. Now, let's get back to the show. Barbarouche. Barbarouche is, is this kind of a new French hop that mm -hmm. um, I have some friends here in Pittsburgh that have been using it for a, a few years now and, and really like what it's putting out. But Mistral is not one that I have heard of. What what do you like about that hop and what what is it bringing to the table in, in this Vitruvian Pills? So Mistral has got a nice kind of herbal flowery character to it. And I think, you know, if you look at Tipo Pills or some of like the more famous you know, Italian Pilsers, Pivo, they, they're a little more floral than they are fruity. And Barbarouge has a lot more fruitiness about it. Um, so the Mistral brings in a little more of that herbal, earthy, grassy, flowery note. I think by itself, it's not particularly outstanding, but it's a nice hop to layer behind something else. It gives complexity. Uh, we've used Mistral and uh, the other one is, well, I'll think of it in a second, of course, but um, we've used a couple other of the French hops and they're fun. We, we really like them. So to continue with the Italian Pilsner thing, it's a style that's starting to to pop up a lot more on craft beer menus. Why mm -hmm. do you think this very hop forward style of Pilsner stayed somewhat ob obscured until recently? I don't know why it stayed obscured, but I know why it's getting popular because it's awesome. Um, <laughs> I mean, the whole story is that you know, I forget the gentleman's name that was brewing in Germany, but you can't dry hop beers in Germany. And so he moved to Italy and started dry hopping and, you know, thus was born Tipo Pills and the whole family. And I think it was a pretty extreme beer for Europeans to kind of take in because of the big hop aroma that come, came off of it. But to Americans that are just into hopping everything really aggressively, it kind of, it kind of became 
you know, similar to what an American pills is, but a little softer, you know, not as aggressive. And it's just, it's nuanced, it's subtle, and it's, it's got a lot of complexity, but it's just crusher, man. You can sit, you know, in front of your barbecue and smash those beers, which I do frequently. I'm a big fan. Yeah, this is, this is absolutely delicious. Yeah, we're proud of it. It, it uh, made it to the like uh, four out of five tables at the international or at the world beer cup in the big boy category with all the big, Ooh. you know, all the big European brewers and pale international lagers. So we figured it's as, you know, if, if that's to be believed, it's at least as good as 80% of the lagers out there. You know, we'll, we'll fine tune it a little bit and see if we can get further next year. Did you send some off to GABF this year? We did. Yeah. Um, it's, it's tough for us because we only have four fermenters here at Bewilder and we're trying to keep up with our tap room. So we, we really can only send what we have that's fresh. And so the, the batch that we sent was pretty fresh. So we're pretty stoked on it. It was a good batch, but sometimes we want to send a beer and you have to register a months and months in advance and you get down to it and like, Oh, this batch is three months old. Just what you got to do. You know, we're not able to metal farm or compete really aggressively that way. But when we're able to make fresh beer and send fresh beer, we, we feel pretty good about what we're able to send. And, and we're proud of it. We, I was a competitive home brewer. And I, you know, the guy that brews with me, Steven Engel, he's a really amazing brewer. When we're able to dial in a beer and, and really focus on it and send it fresh, we feel pretty good about what we're going to get. So I've been to Utah now a few times. And, you know, prior to coming in, you hear some different things about the alcohol laws. So since there's a lot of certain restrictions, um, particularly in this state, how does that affect your approach when you are designing recipes since, you know, kind of being both an owner and a homebrewer standpoint, how does all of that kind of play into uh, what recipes and what beers you guys are producing? Yeah, that's a loaded question. So in Utah, historically, we were- li- We got time. Here we yeah, go. Well, I don't know if yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean I can, yeah, on both sides of it, I can answer that. So, I mean, historically, Utah was limited to 4% ABV, which is 3.2 ABW. So a lot of the 3.2 beer stuff comes from that time. Um, in October of 19, they switched to 5% ABV for draft laws. And anything over that has to be packaged in a can or bottle. Um, and going back to when we brewed those collaboration beers, and I, the neat thing about that is all of the breweries were just like full steam ahead trying to produce beer at 5% to like replenish the market because they had just switched over. So all those breweries that took time out of their production schedule to fit us in, I mean, it was not easy for them at that time. So for us, like the 5% beer works pretty good because most European beer styles fall pretty comfortably in that range. And it gives us a little more flexibility. Um, The IPAs specifically are difficult, you know, because you can't make a, a nice IPA, traditional IPA at 5%, in my opinion, it's just missing out a lot. So we have to do everything in cans and that's, that sucks. And then because of that, we have to have a different license to sell out of our own tap room, those cans. And then the cans are taxed 16%. So for an example, if I sell an IPA at you know $3.50 a can to go, and I sell the ESB at $3 a can to go, because I pay 16% taxes, I actually make more money on the ESB than I do the IPA. But you got to stay in a price point people are willing to willing to pay, you know, so it's tough. But it, yeah. and there's like environmental reasons, like, you know, does it make any sense that a brewery like ours, that's 95% tap room has to package stuff in cans, pour it in a glass and throw the can away, you know, and salt fire. Mm-hmm. I think you guys had salt fire beers in your box. Yeah. Um, salt fire until recently was a bottle brewery and their tap room is all bottles. So if you go in there, they literally would bottle something in back, come out, pour it in a glass and throw the bottle away. It's like, man, how wasteful. So it's, it's stupid laws. 
well, there's a lot of states that have stupid laws. That's one of ours. But, you know, if if we wanted to move to a place that had better liquor laws, it kind of tells me what my priorities are in life. And, you know, beer is fun, but I like hanging out in the mountains a little more. Yeah, Salt Lake City is pretty cool, if, yeah. even if you do have to deal with that. And thankfully, they did bump it up, like you said, yeah. in, in 2019. Mm-hmm. You know, the the OG days of baseball beer are... I, I don't. I guess I don't want to say long gone. It's it's a percent more, but it definitely yeah. makes a difference. It does, you know. And most of our beers fall right right at five percent, and that's not necessarily our design to brew right to style. But you know, on a ten barrel brew house with the efficiency we get on it, like a bag of barrel almost always ends at like ten forty eight to ten fifty. You know, twelve to twelve and a half Plato. So we end up right at five percent anyway. So it's better than keeping half bags around. We just, you know end up there which is nice <laughs> you don't have this mishmash of curled over bags at, at the end of the year like oh i guess we're gonna no. brew a kitchen sink beer uh, well i mean we're not above kitchen sink beers but we we typically we we try to be re- like that. that's one beauty thing about having the brew shop right is that we we try to be efficient with how we're using grains but if we have oh yeah if we have like partial bags of grain if i have 12 pounds of crystal red rye i'll just ship it to the brew shop and you know, make a recipe on the board for homebrewers to use. And if I need 11 pounds of golden naked oats, instead of burning up a bag, I just buy it from the brew shop. So we have that kind of advantage that I'm able to pull. We have like 90 grains in the brew shop. I can pull from the brew shop and get access to a lot of different grains that probably aren't economical for other breweries to to keep on hand. So coming up, we're, we're recording this on the 14th. That'll go out next week. But coming up this weekend... On the seventeenth is the inaugural in the. It, I always struggle with this word, the inaugural Utah Brewers Guild Collab Fest, where over thirty breweries are collaborating on beers, especially made for this event. Bewilder teamed up with Bohemian Brewery out of Midvale, Utah, to brew a UK Golden Lager. Do you, can you talk about this event and like what that means for the Utah beer scene? Yeah, the guild the guild kind of had a bad consumer reputation after some of the legislation went through for like we just talked about the draft laws um because the guild was pushing one way and the consumers thought that was counter to what they should be. So, it's nice for the guild to get behind something that the consumers can go out and enjoy just like everywhere else I suspect. Utah's got a very tight-knit brewing community, so it's fun for the brewers to be able to work together. Uh, the Bohemian has been an all lager brewery forever it's all they do and they triple decoct everything and it's really fun and they're right by our homebrew store so we have a great relationship with those guys down there and so we wanted to brew something that was a little bit outside of their wheelhouse and you know a little bit in our wheelhouse so we kind of used all english ingredients so um, we used golden promise and a bunch of english crystal and biscuit to make our our english lager beer Uh, we call it goldie mcbiscuits and it's delicious. It tastes like <laughs> gold biscuits. It's uh, it's a good beer. But the Guild Fest will be fun. It's a way for the Guild to generate some revenue to use to help lobby the legislature to change some of the more annoying laws that are here in Utah. I know we're, I'm personally working on some legislation to help create a taproom law to allow breweries like ours to spend, to if it's brewed on premises, to dispense anything across our own drafts, no matter what the alcohol content which feels like kind of a no brainer. And for, for us, like Utah is really concerned about overconsumption, but if I make, you know, I have a barrel aged beer that's over 13% and I have to sell somebody a 16 ounce can of it. That's a, 
that's a lot of beer for somebody to drink at 13 mm-hmm. plus percent. And it almost feels yeah. like they're forcing us to serve that much. And so, you know, we can take an environmental stance to, you know, say, Hey, we're saving waste, um, an economic stance that it frees up liquor licenses that the state controls for bars to actually use those instead of breweries. You don't really want to sell spirits, but then it allows us on a beer like that. I can sell somebody an eight or 10 ounce pour, which is just way more reasonable for a beer like that. You nobody needs a drink. I mean, that's not fair. Lots of people need to drink 16 ounce beers like that, but maybe you should do that at home <laughs> or maybe you just yeah. have one. It's night, night juice. Yeah. Yeah. That's those nightcaps. That makes sense. Yeah. I would really like to see all of the beers on draft. So I'm going to switch it up a little bit here and I'm slowly figuring out that I have a weird thing with bison now. So have you had any encounters with bison, animals? What's your, what's your best wildlife in Utah story that you can you can let us know about. Oh man. Wildlife in Utah. Well, a few years ago I was, uh, we had been on a four or five day camping trip and we needed a shower. So we stopped at some little KOA cabins outside a little national or state state park, national Mont- no, state park called Kodachrome basin. And we're sitting there looking out the window and there's a, a bobcat sitting on the, like the fence posts are outside our door. We're like, well, that's not awesome. So we kind of sat there watching it. And then we noticed that it had a collar on. And it turns out that uh, the people in the cabin next to us were from Wyoming and had rescued this little bobcat as a, as a kitten and raised it as their pet. And it was basically just a domesticated bobcat. So that was pretty cool. Wild. You run into a lot of wildlife. Utah's got some cool stuff. We've got two buffalo populations that are totally native. They, they weren't transplanted. They exist nowhere else but that that region. And they, they've never they've never gone anywhere else, which is kind of cool. They're isolated, but yeah, it's, it's pretty neat to have some stuff like that. Where's, where's the other one? I know, I know Antelope Island. I've been there and seen those bison. Where's the, where's the other one? So Antelope is transplanted there. Um, Antelope is transplanted. Go. Yeah. But I mean, they're, they're Utah native. They come out of the book cliffs, um, but the book cliffs okay. specifically. And then there's a little mountain range, not very little. It's actually huge called the Henry mountains and the Henry's, are surrounded by desert on every side and they just kind of come out of nowhere. And that, that Buffalo herd is, I guess you'd say endemic to that region, but yeah, they're, they're genetically pure. They, they have always existed there and they weren't transplanted. They, they just live there. Of all of the things I had in my bingo card, like a domesticated bobcat though, really was not, was not on it. So that is, that's quite a tale. Yeah. I mean, that's our next beer name, domesticated bobcat. It's going to be sweet. I think you got it. Yeah. We always come up with dumb names after the fact. We hate naming beers. Uh, and then we're like, oh, we should have named it that. That's funny. It's funny to mm-hmm. me. Funny to some, probably not funny to anybody else. Cody, that's the best type of funny. And then as soon as people start telling you, oh, this is funny. You should do more stuff like that. Then you can be like, uh, it's it's old hat yeah. now. Yeah. It's on. Yep. <laughs> we had a Schwartz beer called the Druish Princess. And people were like, I don't get it. I'm like, what? You never watched baseballs? Like, come on. It's the Druish Princess. Incredible. There is actually, I think for our, one of the first tours that we, that we took out here, we got that as a sample for, you know, the guests that were on the tour and yeah, we had some, like people were like, I don't get the reference. And I almost kicked them off the van. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> this is, this is such a, like, I absolutely love that. Yeah. Name. And I, obviously the, the style of the beer really just correlated well with it too. So yeah, d- we have, you know, hazy boy and dose hazy boy and El fruity boy. And we had whistle go woo. That was another fun one. Woo woo. <laughs> Whistle go woo woo. Yep, yeah, you got it. You know, you've seen it. 
I wanted uh, to change the name of the Italian Pilsner to Space Lasers, but I don't think people would have got that either. But I would have oh, fully supported it. that. <laughs> yeah. Nope. Nope. We talked about bison. We've talked about domesticated bobcats. We've talked about the jackalope. Bewilderbeast. The Bewilderbeast. Mm-hmm. Cody, have you ever seen the North Shore monster? Oh, is that the, uh, the Great Salt Lake one? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, who hasn't? I mean, it's 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 like a ritual in elementary. You go on a, a field trip out to the Great Salt Lake and you see it. Now, I was like 30 before I even heard that one. Yeah, it's 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 certainly not. It doesn't. The, the North Shore monster needs a better marketing team because the one story that I read just basically ended with most people thought it was a bison, but. We're still going to keep telling this story that it was the Lakeshore monster or the, the North Shore monster. So, yeah. Oh, it sounds better. It's like a fish story, you know. I love it. A bunch of salt miners saw this monster with the head of a horse. Yeah, the Great Salt Lake's <laughs> funny right now. The water is lower than it's ever been in, in known history. And um, there's like, you know, covered, well, I mean, years ago, covered wagons started being uncovered when the water was really high from like the Donner Party crossing. And, now it's way lower than that, but there's all kinds of weird stuff that happens in there. Overall, like, what do you think, or what is the one thing, I guess, that you wish either Utah or Salt Lake City was more well-known for? Beer. No, I mean, yeah, I, yeah Utah's yeah. got a bad stigma about beer here. And, and then for good reason, we had to brew 4% beer for so long. And, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, you had to brew beer styles that people were familiar with. So you're making IPAs and porters and stouts and you know, brown ales and so on and so forth, but they're all at 4%. So compared to beers that were brewed at a more appropriate strength, they didn't stand up super well. And now we can brew beers at a little more appropriate strength. And we're, you know, a lot of the brewers here cut their teeth making those lower ABV beers. And because of it, uh, they're really, really good brewers. You know, it's hard to make a good beer at 4%. Per capita, I think Utah's breweries win more national awards than any other state. Um, we only have, you know, 42, 43 breweries here right now, but, you know, there's only half the state is even going to drink. So if you take, take that math, we do pretty well. Um, we do some, we do some really good beers and then nothing, nothing grinds my gears. Like someone saying, oh, this beer's from so-and-so else place. Therefore it's obviously better than anything made in Utah. Like that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Cause I've had some of the best beers, you know, in the country, uh, here in Utah, and they just don't get the credit because people have this negative mindset of what Utah beer is supposed to be. And we're working on that, you know, and more times people come here and sit in our tap room and some of the breweries around here and they try the beer and they're always like, man, this is way better than I expected this beer in Utah to be. And like, that's kind of a backhanded compliment, but thank you. <laughs> Quality is the barrier for entry now. And anybody that wants to open up a brewery and, and maintain their business for any extended period of time has got to focus on pushing out quality beer. And yeah. uh, I, I'm right there with you. I hate when I hear people like, oh, beer from so-and-so place. It can't, can't be that good. Who, who's ever heard of that place? Well, like, yeah. there's, no mis- there's no mystery anymore. People, there's, there's no mystery about how to brew good beer. It's, it's pretty clear how to brew good beer. You just got to yep. put in the time and the effort and doesn't matter if you're in Boston or the Midwest or the mountain region or in the South, there's good beer being made everywhere in this country. I agree. And I I agree hundred percent. The quality of beer generally 
across the board and across the country has gone up a ton in the last 10 years because, you know, just opening a brewery isn't good enough anymore. If, if your value proposition as a brewery owner is we're going to make good beer, well, you better because that's where you start, you know, and then you have to go from there. And it's, it's tough, you know, it's a tougher industry than people think. It's not a giant money tree in the, in the back that prints money and you just go on vacations across the world, but it's fun. And it's fun to see people in your tap room drinking the beers that you're passionate about that they may not have tried otherwise, like an ESB or an Italian pills and, and sharing that passion with other people. Thanks again for, for joining us, Cody. Yeah. Where can people find, uh, where can people follow Beatwilder and, and where can they find your beer? So at all the normal social media spots at Bewilder Beer, but most of our beer is is on site here. We do ninety six percent in our own tap room. Um, we're in a handful of bars around around the downtown Salt Lake area, and we try to be strategic with that because we just can't keep up with distribution with four four fermenters in a canning spot, not a canning line. But we're working on that, and hopefully we'll grow in the next couple of years and get some better distribution. This has been awesome. The fact that you have to go to Bewoder, go into the tap room and buy the the beer there is exactly a, a testament to why you should go and check out Salt Lake City's beer scene. They're small breweries, but they're producing yeah. excellent beers, classic two style stuff, and you can get the crazy stuff if you want to. And hey, guess what? The city is absolutely gorgeous and, and everything around it is gorgeous and you're going to have a wonderful time. So go there, drink the beer. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Brews Less Traveled. Uh, you can find more from us at bruvana.com. That's where you can join the beer club and get great local beers like these from uncharted beer scenes across the country shipped directly to you monthly while also helping to support this very show. You can also follow us on the social medias, all of them, at Bruvana. We'll be back next week with our next featured Salt Lake City brewery. But until then, stay safe. Be kind and support local breweries. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. Hi, guys. See you.